You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, again, if you are just joining us, we are right in the middle of a series this fall called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And today uh, we're going to be pretty theologically thick because we're going to be asking uh, a very big, important question this morning. In some ways, it's the question of the universe. The question that we're going to be trying to sort out this morning is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Which, which uh, if you've ever asked that, uh, there's a great uh, morning to be here because we're going to be trying to sussing, uh, suss that out uh, through the text. And this is a question that uh, is not original to us, right? It has been asked for literally 2,000 years. People have been trying to sort out who this man is. You just flow, follow the, the course of thought over the past you know, 2,000 years or so, and you're going to bump into moment after moment of folks trying to provide an answer for who this man is. You'll meet folks like the Gnostics over in the, the second century who taught that, that uh, all spiritual was good, that matter was evil, and, and therefore Jesus being God was problematic because he has a body and that's matter, so his body must not matter and it's probably illusory or an, an illusion or you go over to the the Arians in the 300s the Arians uh, were a group of people that taught that, that Jesus was created by God the Father and therefore he was not of the same uh, essence or the same stuff as God himself or, or the Apollinarians Anybody heard of them? Who, who, who heard that, uh, who taught that the body of Jesus was more like a, um, a human shell that inside contained his godness. So, so he didn't actually have a human nature. I call this uh, M&M theology, right? Candy coating on the outside, chocolate on the inside, okay? The Apollinarians. Or, or uh, you, you move over to the 600s and, and you, uh, you meet a man from Arabia named Muhammad who comes on, on the scene and he says, no, Jesus isn't the son of God. He's a prophet of God. He was not divine. He didn't resurrect from the dead. And today there are about 1.25 billion people who still agree with him. Or you skip over to more modern times. You come to, say, the 1800s in places like America where you get an explosion of views about who this person Jesus is. You bump into a man named Joseph Smith who comes on the scenes in the early 1800s in the Northeast and he teaches that Jesus is the offspring of God and one of his celestial wives, that he's the brother of Satan and that Jesus eventually became a God just like his father before him who was a man and then became a God. Or you move over to the 1870s and you encounter the Jehovah's Witnesses who are also still around today and they teach that Jesus is actually none of those things. They teach that Jesus is the archangel Michael, that he's the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God. Or we can move on from there a hundred years later and meet folks like uh, the Heaven's Gate cult, right? Anybody remember them from the 70s, 80s, 90s? Heaven's Gate, uh, these are folks who said that Jesus was a good man whose body was possessed by a space alien, okay? I call this uh, Eminem Theology 2.0, right? Uh, or, or you can move on from there and, and you could talk about more modern movements uh, of understandings of Jesus. Things like uh, the New Age spirituality, which says that Jesus is a great teacher who was filled with the cosmic 
Christ consciousness. And because it's a consciousness that in some ways everything that exists is an expression of Christ. So you're Christ, that chair is Christ, I'm Christ. This is new age spirituality. Now I say all this and and some of you might be hearing all this and and be like this this feels like crazy, right? Like these, these are wild views about Jesus. Can we like... Can we just like get to facts and history? Like he was a man, right? He was just on earth doing his thing as a man. And if that's your camp, you're actually in in another camp view about Jesus. You uh, align with folks like a liberal historical scholarship, folks like Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, uh, an agnostic scholar who wrote a book called uh, How Jesus Became God. And he proposes that Jesus was actually nothing more than a, a Jewish teacher and preacher who lived and died in Palestine in the first century. And that whose followers over the course of time uh, grew the tales about him, embellished them such that over the, the hundreds of years that came after him, he, he developed into a God in Christian theology, but he wasn't originally uh, purported as that. So that, that is a, a very popular view, not just in academia, but it's, it's trickled down all the way to, to popular culture. And look, I, I, I'm giving a lot of information here, and I, it's easy for you to hear all that and go, oh man, I don't care about any of that, <laughs> right? Like, uh, this is just nerd talk. What is happening this morning? This doesn't matter to me. But I, I wanna convince you this morning that it does matter. Like, how you answer this question about who Jesus is matters significantly. There's something on the line here, and some of you know this firsthand. You, you know this. Some of you are struggling and have been for a while deeply with this question. Who is Jesus? Maybe, maybe you've done it publicly with people or maybe just in the privacy of your heart and mind. You just haven't settled who he is. And, and, and it feels unstable. You don't know what to believe. It's, it's difficult for you. I counseled a woman from our church last Sunday who's in this place, who, who's been dealing with a ton of confusion about who Jesus is because she was raised in a Mormon home. And, and, and her Mormon theology taught her some radically different things than what she's hearing about Jesus in this church. And she's been struggling with what's real and what's true, what's false. Who, which Jesus do I believe in? I, I don't know, it's confusing. There's something on the line here for us. It matters, it matters whether the object of worship for 2.2 billion people on the planet is a fiction or not. Because a, a fiction Jesus is not a Jesus who can save you. He can't do anything for you if he's a fiction. So we're gonna do some work this morning to see what scripture actually teaches about the person of Jesus. And if you've been wanting to settle this issue for yourself for a while, there's a great morning to be here. I wanna help you do that. That's what we're gonna be up to. So I'm hoping our legs will get strengthened as we get in the text for our answers. We're gonna start actually in the, the New Testament and we're gonna work our way back to the Old Testament as we sort out this question of his identity. And we're gonna see three things as we do it. We're gonna see the million dollar question, the two million dollar answer, and the priceless stakes. The, the million dollar question, the two million dollar answer, and the priceless stakes. If you're confused already, hang with us. Uh, it's gonna be okay. Uh, we're gonna be in Mark uh, for the first part of this sermon. So get your Bible out, turn to Mark chapter 14. 
uh, verses 60 to 64 roughly. We're gonna be jumping into the interrogation room with Jesus the night before his crucifixion. So as you're turning there, let me just paint the scene for you. It's the night of Jesus's betrayal, right? He's just been captured by a group of thugs that's been sent by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council to, to get him and they take him to the palace of the high priest for questioning. So that's the scene, that's where they're at. He's at the palace of the high priest and a number of folks in this little arena start standing up to bring testimony against him. And, and all of their testimony that they're providing against him is, is uh, confusing and not agreeing with one another. One guy says this thing, another guy stands up and says something counter to that and it's, it's not making sense, they don't correspond and it's not sticking to him. And of course it's not sticking to him because none of it's true, right? And Jesus shrewdly is keeping his mouth shut throughout this whole process as the testimonies disagree. And this is really frustrating to somebody very important in the room, the, the high priest that year whose name is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is, Caiaphas is bothered because he needs Jesus to self-incriminate so he can bring the death penalty charge against him. But he's not doing, he's not opening his mouth. The charges aren't working on him. So Caiaphas rises from his seat. He moves over to Jesus and, and Caiaphas assumes the role of prosecutor in this next exchange. He begins a line of questions with Jesus. And that's where we pick up in this scene. That's where we're at in Mark 14. Verse 60 starts like this. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? So, so here we go, we'll stop there. Uh, this is our million dollar question. Caiaphas is, he's tired of Jesus skirting the issue which he's been really good at up until now and he just asks him point blank, I want to know if you're the Christ. And at this point it would probably serve us to do a little bit of unpacking of what he means when he's asking that. What is that word, Christ, what's happening there? Let me just clarify for us, uh, and, and I don't mean to embarrass anybody if you thought this, but Christ, just so you know, isn't Jesus' last name. It's not like Jesus Thompson. That's not what it means, right? Uh, it's not like that. It, the word Christ is the Greek word Christos, which, which is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Mashiach or Messiah, which means anointed one or, or chosen one. That, that's what that word means and every Jew in that room and every Jew in that day would have had an understanding of what, what that meant and what Caiaphas was asking. That's because the Old Testament is constantly pointing to this future someone out there, this future rescuer of Israel, a future champion who would come to redeem Israel from their oppressors, say the Roman government at that time, right? And uh, he'd restore the Jewish people to their position of power and authority. His, historians tell us that, that the expectation at this time was that this person would have been a, a man, like a physical man who would have been on the earth, who would have come to rule and reign over the Jewish people as God's chosen representative, his redeemer. So it had um, political implications, right? It has national implications. Whoever this guy was, everybody understood he was going to be a huge deal and we'd all know it when we saw it, right? They, they would all know when the Christ came, he would come with such authority that it will be obvious that it's him. So you can imagine it's always a pretty audacious claim for anyone to claim that they were the Christ. You really got to sell us on this thing, 
man, I mean, what do you got to prove? And, and admittedly, it's a, it's a tough sell for a homeless Jewish carpenter from Nazareth to come along and say, I am the Christ. You see, so you can maybe feel a bit of Caiaphas's um, skepticism that, that Jesus is the guy that he has in mind. Uh, Christ don't get captured at night by thugs, right? That's just not what happens. They, they conquer thugs, right? They rule and they reign, they exert their authority. And here Jesus is silent, like a lamb before the slaughter before this, this group of people who are bringing accusation against him. It's not very Christ-like, you see? And, and so Caiaphas has an issue with this. And so he's, he's coming to Jesus and he's, he's bringing his skepticism and he's asking this question. And finally, Jesus breaks his silence and he answers that million dollar question, the question we're all wanting to sort out, with a $2 million answer. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm, I'm not just trying to be silly. It's a $2 million answer because it is way more of an answer than Caiaphas bargained for. That's what I mean. He's about to give Caiaphas something way more than he even asked for. So let's look at Jesus's response. Uh, verse 62 says this. And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I'll stop there. What in the world's going on right here? Well, on the one hand, he answers his question. Just very plainly, and Jesus almost never does this plainly, right? He always complicates things. Uh, Caiaphas asks him, oh, bro, are you the Christ? And his answer is, I am. Are you asking if I'm the Messiah? I am the Messiah. I am the one that you're expecting. So he answers Caiaphas's question, but then he doesn't just stop there in his answer. He could have, but he didn't. He keeps going, and the rest of what he says is, I think, maybe the most powerful argument the Bible makes for who Jesus really claimed to be. So if you're like a, an apologetics nerd and you like want something in your arsenal about where to go in scripture, about this would be a great place to just put a star by because this, this text right here matters a lot. Let's look at what he says. He says, I am, verse 62, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, if you're lost when you hear that, uh, stay with us because we're about to go to the deep end of the pool for, for a bit, uh, but, but uh, it's gonna be okay. I'm gonna, we'll give you some floaties. We're gonna do this together. Uh, one of the critiques, okay, listen, one of the critiques that, that people who oppose Christianity will bring against Christianity uh, is that uh, the claims that we make about Jesus being God are illegitimate. Why? Because they often point to the fact that Jesus himself didn't make those same claims about himself. They'll say things like, for instance, Jesus never in the Gospels anywhere outright called himself God. And you think if the man was God, he would have just had a verse where he said, hey, P.S., I'm God. Uh, you should just know that. Uh, that doesn't happen in the Gospels. There's no sentence that just says that. And Jesus said to them, I'm God, worship me. It, 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 he doesn't even declare himself the son of God outright 
in the New Testament. People call him that and the narrators call him that and there are moments when he affirms that but the sentence, I, Jesus, am the Son of God doesn't occur in that structure. So it's a, it's a little unfair to say that, that he never says that but let's grant them that, okay? Um, in fact though, for most of his ministry, he doesn't even refer to himself as the Christ. Again, these are what other people call him. He didn't like using that term about himself. In fact, the most common phrase that Jesus used for himself, the most common nickname he gave himself, do you know what it is? Does anybody have a guess? The son of man. The son of man. Jesus calls himself the son of man over 80 times in the Gospels. It is by far and away his, his favorite term that he used for himself, which many people think is kind of the death blow to our claim that he's God, right? Because he calls himself the son of man, right? As the son of man. In fact, Muslim scholars often love to point to this to say that this is Jesus's way of telling us that he's human, just like us, human and nothing more. He's a mere mortal and we need to stop projecting godhood onto him because he calls himself man. And in fact, they have kind of a point because there are a couple of times where this phrase shows up in our Old Testament, the son of man, and it means exactly that. It is the writer's attempt to differentiate man from God. Places like a Psalm 8, 4. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? What's the writer doing? He's distinguishing your God and we're just men, just the, the sons of men down here. See, so, so you could see why they would want to point to that and say that this discredits your whole argument. So where do Christians get off claiming that Jesus is anything more than a mere man, that he's actually divine? Where do we get off? Well, I would say we get off right here at Mark 14. Uh, Mark 14, that where Jesus says that he's the son of man, you just, you just said that's like not a great argument. Like find, some, find something better, man. Make something up, but that's not, don't go here. No, I, you don't understand. He's, he's not just saying some like fancy words here. Jesus, in his response to Caiaphas, is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's actually quoting two Old Testament passages here. The first was Psalm 110, verse one. And you don't need to turn there. I'm just gonna read it to you. It says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, uh, if, if you didn't know, this is an interesting fact. This is the most quoted uh, psalm uh, the most quoted set of verses actually in the entire New Testament is Psalm 110. And this is one of the most quoted verses in the entire uh, New Testament. It's a messianic psalm and it's a, it's a picture right here at the beginning of God, the Lord, talking to somebody who's understood historically to be the king or the, the Messiah. He's talking to that Messiah, that king, and he invites him to sit at his right hand. Now that is a place of authority. That's, that's a place of rule. And it's, it's a remarkable thing to say that, that, that Yahweh would say to anybody, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's a big statement. And it definitely conveys kingship, and it definitely even conveys messiahship, but does it, does it say God? Does it convey that? Maybe, I don't know, maybe not. 
But that's just the first reference Jesus makes. Remember, he says, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, that's the first part, and he says, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this second quote gets much more interesting. This is where we get Daniel chapter seven. That's what he's referencing here. So we're gonna spend the rest of our time in Daniel seven. If you wanna flip your Bible over there, uh, you can do that. Daniel chapter seven, uh, verses 13 and 14. Now this is a wild passage. I'm not gonna get into all the details. Let me give you a quick overview. Daniel is a Jewish captive in exile. He, he's, he's been taken by Babylon to Babylon. He's under the, the leadership now of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a remarkable man. Uh, he's a man who God has given the ability to interpret people's dreams. He has a number of those moments. He rolls with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Remember that whole thing? They do like, uh, you know, the, the Daniel fast that you probably have a book of on your shelf. Like there, there's all sorts of special stuff with Daniel. Now, the, the unique thing about Daniel chapter seven is that Daniel in this moment is not interpreting a dream. He's having a dream. He's having a dream, and the dream is wild, and it's, uh, and it's prophetic, and it's eschatological, and you have like uh, these beasts that represent uh, these kingdoms and, and, and world leaders, and you have this, uh, this person called the Ancient of Days there who, who is representative of God in the dream, and there's this massive interaction. I'm not even gonna get into it, but right in the middle of all that activity, you have these two verses, verse 13 and 14, uh, with an allusion to somebody very interesting. So I'm gonna read it for you and then we're gonna make some sense of it. Uh, verse 13 says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now what's going on here? Jesus points to this vision as he's talking to Caiaphas. He references this vision in reference to himself. Well, what does this vision mean? What does it show? Well, it shows us a number of things. It shows us first that there's someone who Daniel, in his observation of this dream, looks like, he says, a son of man, which again, we know is code word for a man. Right, we've seen that in other parts of the Old Testament. So he sees someone that looks like a man. He says he looks like a son of man. And so, so he's man-like in appearance, but there are things that he is doing and receiving that don't happen to mere men. They don't happen to mere men. It says that he comes with the clouds of heaven, for instance. Now, I don't know if when you hear that that rings any bells to you, but if, if you were maybe, say, like an Old Testament scholar, it probably would because you would know there's only two other times in your Old Testament where anybody comes on the clouds of heaven, and I'll let you guess who it is. It's not you. It's God, right? Isaiah 19.1, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Psalm 104.3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He, God, makes the clouds his chariot. This is an activity that every other time in the Bible is always in reference to God only. But I don't even need a verse to convince you of this, right? I just need to do this. By show of hands this morning, who here came to church this morning on the clouds of heaven? Just real quick, cross the room. No? Okay. 
uh, it's, I get it, it's tough to park a cloud car. Um, you didn't come this morning on the clouds of heaven because that thing is not what mere mortals do. Cloud cars are reserved for one person only, and it's God, right? And he says here, though, that that's how the Son of Man rolls up on the clouds of heaven. Interesting. Just note that. Let's keep going. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Remember, this is the passage that Jesus is wanting Caiaphas to think about as he's talking to him. So this person here, who looks like a Son of Man, is now given something. He's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that he has authority to rule and reign and govern. And get this, who he's governing, the text says, is the entire population of earth. Look at the next part of it. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, I'm no peopleologist, but I think that covers everybody, right? All, all peoples, nations, and languages. That's it. There's nobody that doesn't fall into that category. And it says that not only will he be endowed with a kingdom comprised of every people group on earth, but that his subjects are to worship him. Now, you don't see it right away in the text because in the ESV translation, it renders it serve. But I just want you to, to see this. That word serve in the Hebrew is this Hebrew word pelach. It only appears 10 times in your entire Old Testament. And every time, get this, every time that word shows up, it is always in conjunction with a deity. It always shows up with reference to a deity, either God or a false god, an idol. But it's, it's, so it doesn't just mean serve like we think serve, like dig a hole for somebody, I'm serving you. But it's serve like pay homage to, pay reverence to, which is why some translations actually render the word here worship, that, that this is worship going on here between people toward the Son of Man. Now, who can be worshiped? Well, m mere men can't be worshiped. Angels can't even be worshiped. Who, who gets worship in the Bible? God himself. Interesting. And lastly, it tells us that this arrangement of him having global dominion is eternal. Look at the next part. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So just in case there was any doubt, right? We are officially no longer talking about a normal king ruling a normal group of people on, on the earth over a normal period of time. That's not what's happening anymore. It can't be because that's not what the text says because the, the kingdom that he's being handed to rule is forever. It's eternal. His subjects will be worshiping him, according to Daniel 7, forever and ever. It's an everlasting dominion. Are you getting it? Are we getting it? Jesus, in his response to Caiaphas about who he really is, points to the only Old Testament reference where we have a picture of someone who is both a man and yet at the same time possesses attributes and qualities and authority that only belong to God. Does that sound like anyone you might know? Someone who is, oh, I don't know, 
both God and man? Do you see what this means? <laughs> this means we're not crazy, right? It means that we didn't make this stuff up. This is really good news, guys. You should be more happy about this. From the very earliest account that we have of Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, we have indisputable evidence that from the very beginning of Christianity, not like Bart Ehrman says three, four, 500 years after Christianity, but from the very beginning and the earliest manuscripts out of Jesus's mouth himself, we have evidence that he understood himself to be truly man and truly God at the same time. From now on, when you're reading the Gospels and you come across the phrase, the Son of Man, you should rejoice because he's saying in that moment infinitely more than just, hey, I'm a dude like you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am God and I am man at the same time. He's saying, I'm the promised savior, co-equal with the ancient of days, reigning alongside him, exercising dominion over the entire earth, whose kingdom is eternal, who will be worshiped by all peoples and nations of the earth for all time. Jesus is God and man. And to miss this is to miss Christianity entirely. If you miss this, you missed it all, which brings us to what's at stake if we forfeit this precious doctrine, the priceless stakes. Why is this a hill that Christians should die on? Because you should die on this hill. There are some hills that we die on that we don't need to, but this is a mountain that we need to die on. Why, though? because everything hangs on this being true, that Jesus is truly man and truly God. Why is that? Let me tell you, if, let's take it one part at a time. If Jesus isn't truly man, what do we lose? What do we, what do we give up? Uh, this is what we give up. We would no longer have a true representative to stand in our place. You see, for you and I to be saved, Jesus had to accomplish two very important things for us. He had to live in our place and he had to die in our place. He had to live in our place, right? As our representative, where he would fully obey all the commands of God in every way that you and I fail to every single day. He's a stand-in, living in our place, fulfilling the law that we could not fulfill. But if he wasn't really a man like we are, how could he be adequate for the task? It wouldn't be representative. He wouldn't be a good rep for us. He had to live in our place, but he also had to die in our place as a substitute. See, it, in our sinful rebellion, we have incurred wrath from a holy God. Just like a good judge has to punish sin and law violators, our judge has to punish all sin and law violators. There is a debt we now owe and for the wrath that we deserve to be absorbed by someone else, a wrath absorber must stand in our place. But if Jesus wasn't a man like me and you, he wouldn't be a sufficient stand-in. 
because he wouldn't be like us. He would not be a good representative on the cross. So if he wasn't truly man, we would have no hope of representation of somebody who could stand in our place before God. But, but let's say for a moment that, that we do uh, hold on to that truth, that we say, yes, he is, he is truly man, but we, like so many um, maybe more liberal-minded scholars today, let go of the second part of that, but he wasn't God. He wasn't God. What are we giving up if we let that go? Well, if he isn't truly God, then he couldn't bear the full penalty of our sin. Right? I mean, think, just think about that. How can a finite person, a finite, frail person like you or I bear the full weight of the infinite wrath of God against sin? No one's adequate for that task. No one can do that. No one except the God himself. And in the most shocking event in human history, that's exactly what happened. God himself became a man. He became a man and lived the perfect life that you and I fail at every day, died in our place as a sinless substitute and made full payment for everyone who trusts in him through his perfect offering for sin. The only person in the world who could possibly pull that off must be both God and man. And there's only one of those people. And his name is Jesus. Now, I want to end by saying something. Um, I wrote this sermon this week in hopes that the Holy Spirit would persuade you that Jesus really is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And, and I think the text speaks for itself and I'm hoping the Spirit is doing his work to convince you that it's not lying. But as I was praying this week about what God might have for us, I just, I, I got the sense that thinking about our context right here, here in kind of the buckle of the Bible belt, that, um, that knowing this truth is probably not the biggest need we have this morning. That's just my, my guess. My guess is if I pulled the room right now, I bet 90% of you would have a hearty yes and amen to everything I just said. Ye yes, Jesus is the Christ, of course he is. Yes, he's, he's fully God and fully man. Orthodoxy, right? And, and let me just say, I, I, I'm not making fun. I love that. Praise God that we have a church that holds to the truth. Yes, there are plenty of churches that don't, so amen to that. I'm grateful for that. But my question is, has it changed you? Like, I guess cool you believe that, but the demons believe that. Satan believes that. It's nothing new. These are just facts and that we've given our mental assent to. But has it changed you? Do you treasure him for it? Think about what we're talking about. Could, could there be more important topics in the universe? And does it do anything for your soul? Like, really? Does your, does your life at all exhibit that, that it makes one bit of difference that Jesus is the Christ? 
Like, does, does the way you engage with your neighbor with the gospel or not engage with them with the gospel reflect that you actually believe that the Son of Man is to be worshiped by the whole earth? Does your, does your social media feed or your search history or, or your spending habits or your eating habits or your prayer life reflect that he's your king? I, I'm not just... I'm, this is, I'm not trying to like guilt trip us or like shame us. I, I'm just going, look, we, we've heard this stuff, but is it just data? D- data can still send you to hell if you don't treasure it. It's not, it's not enough to just go, yeah, I affirm that thing as being a thing that happened in historical past. Is it a treasure to you? There is more than one way to have a fictional version of Jesus. Do you know that? There's more than one way. One way you can have one is by not believing true things about Jesus. That's one way, and we've talked about that. But you can also not have one, also have one by by not treasuring the true Jesus that you believe. That's another way to have a false Christ. Uh, an article came out last year that uh, 30 years ago, uh, a guy up in Michigan in this uh, little town of Edmore bought a piece of property, he bought a farm, and, and there on the property in the house that he bought actually was this, uh, it's like a big um, rock, just like a weird shaped rock that uh, weighed about like 20, 22 pounds. And uh, for the next 30 years, the, the guy uses the rock as a doorstop in, in his house, which is just so a guy thing to do, by the way. A 22 pound rock as a doorstop is amazing. Um, at, at some point last year, he gets curious because he recalls to mind that the, the previous owner told him that that rock that's his doorstop was a meteor that had come down in the 1930s on the property. So he takes it into a lab to get it analyzed, and it comes back that it actually is a meteor, the sixth largest meteor discovered in the history of the state, and that it's worth $100,000. And for 30 years, he used it as a doorstop. (laughs) And if there's a fear I have this morning, it's that we have something infinitely more precious, but that we would treat it as forgettable and common. That's the fear, that, that the, this news that the Son of Man has come, it won't electrify you anymore. That it's just like, yeah, that's, that's what I hear because I live in the South and I come to church and that it, will, it wouldn't shock you to your core that it'd just be a doorstop for you. Just like a, a bit of data that I, I hold on to because it, it keeps me on the conservative side of things. It's wrong. He's not just after your brain, he wants your heart, he wants your affections, he wants your hands, he wants what you spend your time on, he wants what you say with your lips, to be all bound up in the fact that that is the treasure of my life. You're the son of man, I love you for it. And look, if that's you, if you've you've known all the facts about him for years but you've never cared to make him your treasure, then there's good news for you this morning. 
the, the same Son of Man from Daniel 7 is full of grace for you right now. He's full of grace, and he wants you to come to him this morning and trust him. And it's not too late. That's the good news. Like one day, we all will stand before that throne of God like we see in Daniel 7, and it will be too late, but you don't have to stand there as his enemy waiting to be judged by him. You can stand there as his friend. I don't want you to be there in front of him one day going, but I, I knew that you were 100% God and 100% man. Wasn't that enough? It's not enough. He wants your heart. Will you give him your heart today? And look, I recognize that's not everybody in the room. I, there's probably some of us in the room who have been really struggling with the truth of this and you, and you wanted to settle this. And this morning, the invitation is settle it. Settle who he is, that he is a God to be worshiped, not just a, a guru to be followed. He is a God. He is the God, Yahweh himself. And he's fully man. He can fully empathize with you. He absorbed all the penalty in your place. Settle it today, wherever you are, whether you've never thought about it before and now you are thinking about it, or you've known this your whole life and you didn't care. Come today to the Son of Man. Come come to him. He wants you. He wants you. Let's pray. God, I feel everything that I'm challenging this this church with. I'm concerned, God, that I grow cold at, at this news that I, I constantly am, am looking at. I just don't want, I don't want us to be a cold people. I don't want us to be a people who forget our first love, although we know everything about him. I don't want that for us. And there's such a temptation for that. And in a culture here where we're saturated with Bible stuff and gospel talk and all that, that that this holy thing can become common for us. I don't want that for us, so will you protect your church from that? And will you electrify us with the news that the Son of Man has come? He came lowly first and he will come again in power and glory. Will you electrify us with that? I don't know who, who needs to know that and be changed by that, but God, through your spirit, will you do work right now? Will you change us, God? We're desperate for you. We're, we're desperate to be desperate for you. Help us. Help us to treasure you and not treat what is holy as something that's common. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.